Good morning, everybody. Um, as we continue in our study of Corinthians, I want to remind you that uh, Paul is writing and he's answering questions that the Corinthians had, they had given to him, and he's dealing with the first issue, which is division within the church. Uh, the church's fellowship is splintering, it's, it's fraying, and his desire is that they would mend, they'd mend their relationships to each other by refocusing on Jesus Christ. And I talked to you a couple weeks ago when we started about getting a Christ, a gospel-centered life or a cross-centered life. I've said it to you guys a million times, like take your life and start at the cross and work your way out. You died. Your old man is dead. Uh, Your sins have been taken on the cross. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. Now, what does that life look like coming out of the cross, out of the power of the resurrection, the promise of the Holy Spirit? being poured out into our lives, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, to walk in the Spirit and to have our minds formed to the mind of Christ, our hearts being transformed into being the temple of the Holy Spirit, our lives beginning to reflect in our personal life what that looks like. And then secondly, and just as important, how we love each other, how we see each other, how we treat each other, how we treat the new believer that comes in, the new person, how we look at our neighbor, All this is transformed because we're coming out of a life that has been redeemed and set free by the cross. I think I've shared with you guys before how how we can be kind of we could we could say our we could put our Christianity and it could become a national church, you know what I mean? Or it could become an ethnic church and this is our church. But does that reflect the kingdom of God? Does that mindset reflect the kingdom of God. I don't, I don't know if you guys ever heard this story, but Gandhi had read the scripture, he had read the gospels, and in, there in South Africa, he had decided to attend a Christian church. But as he got into the church, what, instead of greeting him, you know what the usher told him? Why don't you go worship with your own people? Think about that. Why don't you go worship with your own people? I don't know if that usher knew that that the Messiah was Jewish. I didn't know if he knew that, because uh, where would he be going then, right? But I want you to see how that, that the, our culture can defile, you know, our faith. How we, the church begins to reflect the culture and the value of the culture rather than the values of the kingdom of God. And it's a dangerous thing. So when we look at Corinthians, in these first four chapters, what he's dealing with is the the unity in the church. And he begins, again, by refocusing on the power of the cross. So that's what we're looking at today, the message of the cross in contrast to the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world. Now, I want you guys to think about this. Why does God, or why does Paul pick on wisdom? Why would he pick on wisdom? Because for the Corinthians, they were proud, right, being a Greek, coming from a Greek culture and a Greek Greek background. What were they known for? Philosophy, thinking. They had all kinds, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Hippocratics, they had all these schools of philosophy. They were very proud. And again, not all these philosophies were bad, by the way. It was actually a human being taking serious consideration of their life. What is our purpose? What are we we to live? What are we to do? These questions are heavy, and we should be thinking about these things. But when we begin to be proud, proud of, of, again, of something in our culture, it can be detrimental to us when you bring it into the body of Christ. Now, let me ask this question. 
as good Americans, what would be the thing we're most proud of? Don't answer that. Don't want to expose yourself. But I really want you to think about it. What, what are we so proud of? Would it be philosophy? Of course not. No way. That's not our culture. But what is it? What has this last couple of years exposed about what we're most proud of? Is it our liberty? Is it our freedom? Think, really think about it. Really, if Paul was writing us, what would he gently be rebuking us about? I would say this, the thing we're most proud of. Because I would say this, if, it's not, if you, the sad thing is, I hope you would say, well, the cross, save my glory, except the cross of Jesus Christ. Would that be the church's answer? I hope so. But let's be honest, it's not. And I would say, if Paul was to write to us, what would he pick on? Because I want you to see something. Paul had to deal with Jewish believers in Jerusalem, Samaritan believers in Samaria, predominantly Greek believers in Corinth and in Antioch, had to deal with Roman believers in Rome. So when we look at the church, it's not just one ethnic group. It is a mixture of different ethnicities, and Paul is dealing with all of them. So with the Corinthian church and a city that is known for its thinking, outside of Athens, this might be the second most popular place to go to school for philosophy. And he, again, they're bringing that attitude into the church. And so what Paul does today is he confronts it with what? The cross. And I want to remind you guys of something, what Jesus said. If you're going to come after me, what do he say? If you're going to come after me, what do he tell us? Pick up your cross and follow him. Pick up your cross. Why, why the cross? Because that's where we, our old man dies and our new man comes out. So Paul confronts the thing they're most proud of, and that is philosophy. And he's going to put them to the task on it. And I love it. I love Paul. A lot of people didn't. You know why? Because Paul confronted us on our stuff. Who likes, who likes you know, your mail being read? None of us, right? You know what I mean? Who likes that? Who likes to like, have your heart exposed to your deepest secret? Raise your hand. I didn't think so, right? None of us do. You know, years ago, I was teaching at a church, and it was third service. And I came out, and the pastor wasn't there. I was covering for him that day. And as I came out, a woman in the audience says, oh, no, not him. And I went, whoa. You know, it's about 900 people, right? 900 people. And I'm like, hey, hey, what's that all about? And she goes, every time you preach, I get convicted. And I go, well, hey, ma'am, I don't know you. I don't follow you around Marietta. I don't know what kind of car you drive. Tell you what, you got a problem with being convicted. Talk to the Holy Spirit. Don't talk to me. And then we started laughing, right? Because, again, if we're not being confronted, if I'm not being confronted, then I don't think my life's being changed. I really don't. And I want to be changed and conformed to Jesus Christ. His heart, his mind. So as Paul confronts them, remember the problem. It's they're, being, they're, be, they're, picking, they're picking their champions. They're picking their favorite. And here's the thing. By picking their favorite, they're diminishing, diminishing the unity of the body of Christ. And I would say this. We are always in danger. Anytime we pick a favorite pastor, a favorite theology, a favorite view of something, it begins to fray at the very unity of the body of Jesus Christ, and we have to fight, like I said last week, we have to fight to remain unified in Jesus. We have to have that be our, one of our great goals. 
So again, Paul pointed to the unity of Christ. How did he do it in the beginning? He pointed to the unity of Christ by what? There is one Savior and one body. Then he reminded them of their baptism, a picture picture of their spiritual death to self and their new life in Jesus Christ. And he wanted to remind them of this because this was their common experience. They all could say, I've put my faith in Christ. They all could say, I've identified my life in Jesus Christ. How? Through baptism. And we're a new life. So he wanted to bring them back to what unified them. And he closed out last week in verse 17 by saying this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom, not with, not with words of eloquent, eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. He moves them from their divisions to center them back on the means of their salvation, which is the power of the cross. The power of the cross. I, want, I really want to emphasize that. When Paul looked at the cross, he saw power in it. He saw the power to change lives, to unify people, to change values. And we'll see this in history where the cross of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel brought down empires, didn't it? It recalibrated civilizations. It helped to end slavery. It helped to end, you know, every kind of great movement in human history, at least in the West, has been what? A Christian movement empowered by the Holy Spirit and people living out what they believe to the point of being even persecuted. But they went for it. So Paul begins them back. And again, Warren Wiersbe said this, we are called into fellowship because of our union with Jesus Christ. He died for us. We were baptized in his name. We were, we were identified with his cross. What a wonderful basis for spiritual unity. What is it? It's the cross. Look around you, please. Look around you. Look at your spouses, too. It's easy to look at the other person. It's funny. All the spouses go. They go the other way. They don't, look, they don't look at each other. They go the other way. But I want you to see something. We are one in Christ. Your age doesn't matter. The music you listen to doesn't matter. Your favorite sports team doesn't matter. Your favorite hobby doesn't matter. It's faith in Jesus Christ that unifies us. And that's the bond that we have. So Paul now begins by showing to us the power of the cross. Look what he says in verses 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now I want you to see the key word here is what? Wisdom. Paul uses it eight times in this section. Eight times. Now, I want you to see there's two types of wisdom we're looking at. The wisdom of the world is finite. I want to emphasize that to you. What do I mean? The wisdom of this world is based on the past. It's based on what we've learned, what we've come to understand. It rarely reaches out into the future. It's always based on the past. It's very finite. It's like, you know, it's given the ingredients of this world. And I think this is just, just a radical side note. When you look at like all of creation, we're all made of the dust of the earth. But what makes man so special is that God breathes his life into us. He, breathe, he breathes the breath of life. And I'm saying when we look at eternal wisdom, it's the mind of God. So it's not looking at the beginning of history and the end of history. He's looking at it from eternal perspective. So there's the wisdom, the finite wisdom of man, and there's the eternal wisdom of God. And this is what Paul is going to compare the wisdom of this world to the wisdom of God as expressed in what? The cross of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying this, when we look at wisdom, 
When we look at what real wisdom looks like, he says, look at the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ because you'll find the wisdom of God there, right? And you'll find the power of God there on the cross. Have you ever thought about it in those terms? That the wisdom of God is what expressed in the cross of Christ and the power of God is expressed in the cross of Christ. We'll look into that a little more here in a second. But notice he quotes two Old Testament verses here, partially. The first one is Isaiah 29, 14, and the second one is Jeremiah 9. We'll look at both of them. But notice what he says there. He says, the cross of Christ is folly, foolishness, stupidity to those who are perishing. And again, he, and he's going to put in the, 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 G, the Greek and, and the Jew, the Jew and the Gentile. He's going to confront both of them in what he's saying. And he says this, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So we're looking at it going, it's beautiful, it's lovely, it's amazing, it's, it's transformed my life, it's transformed the way I value things, it's transformed the way I look at things. But to other people, it's like, you're an idiot for believing that. Oh, really? You're, you're a Christian? Re- oh, yeah, God died on a cross for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, man. And it's like, yeah, to you it's folly, but to me it's the power of God. To me it's something different. I've experienced God through the cross. I see his love for me on the cross. I see his hatred of sin on the cross. I'll see to what great lengths God will go to to reconcile humanity to himself on the cross. It's not through anything else. It's through the cross. But he quotes this first one. It's Isaiah 29, 14. Isaiah writes this, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder in the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. So it, Paul is quoting this because he's saying, this goes back to the captivity. It goes back to the, to the deportation of Israel from Jerusalem into Babylon. And the, the people, now the wise man's going, well, it doesn't look good, guys. It doesn't look like we have a future. It doesn't look like we'll be back to the promised land. And God's going, wait a minute, I'm not done with you yet. You're going because you're sin, but tell you what, I'm going to bring you back. And not just that, I'm going to send a Savior. We're going to come back to Jerusalem. We're going to rebuild these walls. We're going to rebuild this temple. And not just that, the Savior's coming. But the wisdom of the world says, no, it's over. And I think I really want you to look at your life. Because I think sometimes we get to these points in our lives where it looks like we're being taken into captivity. Where it looks like God's just done with us. And God's like, wait a minute, my promise is sure to you. Remember what we started with in this letter. That day that Christ comes back, his bride, the church, is going to be found what? Blameless. Blameless before God. You're part of the church? Good news. He's bringing grace for you. God is not done. But it's going to expose how limited human wisdom is. It's going to expose how limited the human heart is. How it can't see past so often the things that are going on, the circumstances around us. We get angry. We get frustrated. We lose hope. And God's going, no, 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 no. I'm going to do more wonderful things than this. But my, what I'm going to do is going to confound your wisdom. It's going to show the limitations of the human heart and the human mind. So Paul, what he does here is that he shows that God's promises overthrow and bring to nothing the admired wisdom and the intelligence of the wise. The wisdom offered by the wise would vanish because it's based on the past. And God was going to do new wonders such as the fall of Jerusalem, the return from captivity, and the sending of the Savior. The wise could not see that. 
the wise had forgotten. And this is why we know Abraham was wise. Because Abraham could be on that mountain 2,000 years before Christ, as he's going to sacrifice Isaac, and he could say this, I see the Savior coming. I see the Savior's coming past the 450 years that my grandkids are going to be in Egypt. God's going to fulfill a promise to them. I see it. And after that, he's going to establish a nation. I see it. He's going to establish a kingdom. I see it. But greater than that, he saw the day of the Messiah. What did Jesus say he did? He rejoiced. He rejoiced. That's wisdom, you guys. That's wisdom. Now, remember the things that Paul says in this Pastor Phil's read to us. Why is the wisdom so limited? Why is the Stoic philosopher or the Epicurean philosopher or the Hippocratic philosopher? If you read these philosophies, and I, I had to read them in Philosophy 101, right? We all did. When you read them, you're like, hey, this isn't bad stuff. There's some wisdom here. And it is. There is some wisdom here, but it's limited. It's limited. They see the problems like we do. They look for answers like we do. But in their answers, or in their answers, they're, they're kind of, they're frail. They're fallible. They're not transforming anybody. They're good, though. I mean, read them. They're good stuff. And Paul's going, here's the problem with your wisdom. Through it, you didn't know God. Through it all, you did not know God. So in Jeremiah, look what it says. He says this, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. Notice that again, you guys. I want you to see something, because he says back there in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. I will destroy. And so in this verse, you guys, in this verse, I want you to see something. God is revealing himself. What, what the philosophy, the limitations of the philosophy, where it hits the wall, God reveals himself. And that's the name of God, isn't it? Because we find it first back in Exodus chapter 34, when he's passing before Moses, when Moses is in the rock, remember that? In the cleft of the rock? The Lord passes by, and he said, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's the name of God. You know, I had a, one of my teachers one time said, you should meditate on this. You should meditate on Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Because, see, to the philosopher, he would never draw this conclusion. Because let's think about this. When you think about Greek mythology, you guys read Greek mythology in school? You guys see Clash of the Titans? Let's just, let's, just get, let's just get it down. Let's just bring it down to where we can understand this. You guys ever see Clash of the Titans, right? What do those gods look like? Zeus, Paphrodite. Hermes, Apollos, whatever the Roman, the Greek gods, they just change the names, but they're the same person. What did they look, what did they look like to you? Would you say they were godlike? Was Zeus godlike, or was he an angry, insecure, lustful deity? What do you think? Hmm, what, what does that look like? That looks kind of like mankind, doesn't it? See, man, in their thinking, 
believes that we are just smaller versions of the God they believe in. And is that true? No, we're fallen versions of the God we worship. Yahweh, I am who I am, right? Jehovah El Shaddai, Elohim, Jesus. We desire to be like him, but here's the thing, we're nothing like him. Are forgiving to a thousand generations, loving, steadfast. That's how God reveals himself to us. But through philosophy, we would never come to that understanding. Through natural, through natural philosophy, through natural theology, looking around at creation, looking around at the animal kingdom, looking around at mankind, we would never draw that conclusion of what God, of God is, again, loving, kindness, and all these expressions of his attributes and who he is. We would never come to that conclusion without God revealing himself to us. So Paul says... Don't mix human wisdom. Do not mix human wisdom with God's message. And guys, really think about that one. Because that's what the Corinthian church was guilty of. Paul, Peter, Paul, Jesus. Oh, let's pick. Let's divide. And Paul's going, no, no, no. Do not do that because the cross is the revelation of God's wisdom, not Apollo's eloquence. It's not Peter's you know, pedigree of being an apostle. That is not where God is revealed. It's definitely not me, Paul says. Don't look at me like that. Don't follow me. Keep your eyes on Jesus because he's going to unify us. He's going to strengthen us. And so Paul goes on in verses 20 and 23, and he says, where is the one who is wise? Where's the expert, right? Where's the professional in his field? Where's the scribe? Where's the teacher of the law, right? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the philosopher, he's asking? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know him through wisdom. That's what he's saying here. It pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? For God, through the cross, has made their wisdom foolishness. Has made their wisdom foolishness. The philosopher, through reason and logic, look for purpose. And they, and again, and they are not bad or evil. What Paul is saying, that through all their words, they did not know God. Through all of their thinking, through all of their Socratic method, through all of their, again, read the Republic. Read Plato's Republic. It's good. Good stuff, man. Laws. Just laws. It's good. But they don't know God. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no redemption. There's no unity. The Stoics, you know how they saw mankind? It's kind of a beautiful picture. They saw everybody being equal. They saw everybody being equal. But here's the thing. How can they make that happen? Well, how does the world make that happen? Through conquering others, right? We will conquer you, and now we're one, right? Now we're one, because we conquered you, and now our military is stronger than yours. Now we are one. Are we? No. It doesn't work, right? But that's how we do it. How did Christ do it? How did Christ make us one? He died for us. He came with no weapons. The only weapon he used was the weapon of love the weapon of service, the weapon of sacrifice? And should the Christian church's message be any different? Should our lives be any different? They shouldn't. And that's what Paul's trying to get through to them. Remember, and here's the thing. 
Look what Paul writes. Well, Paul said this in Acts 17, 27. He said this, speaking of the nations and man, he says, they should seek God, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he actually is not far from each one of us. Paul is quoting a Greek poet there, but he's applying it to the God of Israel. And Paul is saying, God is there. He's right there. And they're so close as they think and as they philosophize, as they reason, as they have this logic, he is right there and God's all, seek me. Seek me. But somewhere along the way of seeking him, because of our darkened minds, we project God into our image, don't we? And that was the problem. We projected God into our image instead of finding him. Because Paul says of this world, or James says of this world's wisdom, look what he says in James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, but if we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And I believe you find that expression in what? The Greek and Roman gods. The Greek and Roman gods, right? Demonic, man. Enslaving people to fear. Enslaving people to think they could pay off their deity through some sacrifice. If it's enough, we can't bring that into our faith in Christ. Our sacrifice is once and for all, and we believe in what he's done. And in that, we have this unity that God wants us to have. I always look at the Greek gods as just greater men, but just like us. Super strong, maybe living forever, but just like us. And I want you to see something. We find three responses to the message of the cross. The first one is what? A stumbling block to who? Who stumbles at the message of the cross? The Jews. Why? Why? They're blinded, that's part of it, but why else? So what were they looking for? A hero? The righteousness through the law? What? A savior dying for us? Whoever thought of that? We didn't see that one coming. Like, come on, man, that's crazy. That's, oh, it's offensive. Yeah, but that's the message, isn't it? That's the message of the cross. The message about a crucified Messiah would have offended the Jewish people. According to Jewish tradition, a person hung on a tree, a a cross, was considered to be cursed, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Jews would not have expected God's chosen Messiah to experience such a horrific death. Why? Because the human wisdom says this, that is defeat. He is defeated, and God's going, you're only seen with your eyes. Because what really happened on that cross was the defeat of sin and death, wasn't it? that he went to Hades and he took the keys of death out of his hands. And he's victorious over it. But they can't see that. Why? Because they see through eyes of pride. They see through human effort that can appease God or please God or through their pedigree, through their background. Oh, we're Jews. We're God's people. Really? Yeah, on a certain level. But in Christ, he creates a new man, doesn't he? He creates a new man. What do the Gentiles do? They mock the cross. <laughs> to the Greek mindset, the whole um, which held no Mosaic expectations, they were not waiting for a Messiah. They were not waiting for a Messiah. And the message of Christ crucified was complete foolishness to them. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They mock it. They would laugh at it. And, and I'm going to tell you guys something. Isn't that what we find in the world today? 
Has anything changed in 2,000 years? Has anything changed? We're narrow-minded. We're bigots. We are racist. Uh, whatever it is, they want to call us as believers in Christ because there's a standard of righteousness. There's a way that is right, right? And they don't like that. They are now casting man in their own image, aren't they? Frayed and broken and, and not, no way of healing. But that's what they throw. And they're like, no, that is foolishness. Oh, that, they mock it. They laugh at it. But man, I'm going to tell you right now, to us who believe, what is it? It's the power of God. It is the power of God. A crucified Messiah defied all Jewish expectations, and it was dismissed as absurd by the Gentile world. And Paul calls these three to bear witness, the expert, the interpreter and writer of the law, and the philosopher. And he asks them one question. Through your studies into man's wisdom, have you come to know God in a personal way? Through all this New Age stuff, through all this paganism, there's a revival in paganism, especially among our young people. A revival in it. There's this fraying of human personality. I mean, a billion different personalities, right? All of this. But have they ever come to know God in a personal way? A God that loves them, that died for them, that calls them by name. Have they ever, ever come to know that? You know, Amanda was telling me, she was listening to a podcast, where it was actually this Jewish woman. She's a psychologist, a, I think a, a psychiatrist. And she's done these studies on, on human nature. And she says in each human being, there is a desire for a, a, for a God-like figure. There's a desire for it. And we see it, don't we? I don't care what civilization you look at. Any ancient civilization, they had gods, didn't they? Whether it be, whether it be the, the, the Incan or the Mayan or the Aztec, they all were trying. The sun, the moon, like, okay, the sun's our God, and there's a spirit behind it. And then you go into Europe, and there was all kinds of paganism. You go into Rome and into Greek philosophy, into Egypt, there's all kinds of gods, isn't there? Because we're spiritual people. It's the most obvious thing to me. And we ignore it. We ignore it completely and act like, oh, that was ancient man. We still long for it. God has put that in our hearts. And as he reveals himself to us, so often what gets in the way is our pride, our self-reliance, our love of sin, and the love of our idols. And we do not want to give them up. Let's just be honest. We don't. But I'll tell you, it takes us getting to the rock bottom, doesn't it? Have you guys ever been to rock bottom? I have a couple addresses there, right? And when I got there, you know who met me? Jesus Christ. And he found me. He found me. So the message of the cross to me, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. He bridges the gap, doesn't he? He pays our debt, doesn't he? He takes our hopelessness and he breathes hope into it. And not just a temporary hope, but an eternal hope. That's the message of the cross. And I want to tell you something. When we base our lives upon that message and upon that person, we can't help but love each other. We're in on the secret. We know what's going down. We have hope for the future, don't we? Not just for this life, not just for this decade, not just for this year, but we have an eternal hope, or at least we should, because that's what Christ wants us to have. But to those, Paul says in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, notice what he does there. He unifies the peoples, doesn't he? 
He unifies us. He says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Because I want you to see something. You look at every empire I just named, and they have the same, the same structure of power, don't they? A king, an aristocracy, a priesthood. That you might have a middle class, but not really. It's them and then everybody else. I don't care what, I don't care where you go in the world. That's what it looked like. Power, right? I'm gonna hold you under my thumb. The reason you obey is because you don't want to die. That's why you obey. But here comes God. What does he do? He turns it all upside down. That's the wisdom of God. He's not born in, you know, in a, a capital city in the world, in South America. And one of the, I mean, these guys had great civilizations, didn't they? China, great civilizations. Persia, <laughs> Iraq. You just go through, I mean, great. He wasn't born. Where was he born? In a stable in Bethlehem. That's where he was born, the king of kings. That's the wisdom of God. Do you see it? They, he turns the value system of this world on its ear, and he says, this is the right way. You keep grasping for power. You keep grasping for purpose. You keep grasping for legacy. You keep grasping for these things. But I'm going to tell you right now, this is the way. If you want to be great, be a servant. What? A servant? You know, I was at this conference with Mark on, on Friday, and the guy said this, and it was funny. He said, yeah, everybody, no one has a problem with being a servant, right? You can, you can be number one right after me. After me, you could be number one, all right? But until then, I'll be number one, and then you be 1A. But I'm one. And that's how we look at it. And Jesus comes and says, no, I'll wash your feet. I really want you to think about this. This is the wisdom of God. God says, you're not going to seek me. I'm going to seek you. You're not going to find me. I'm going to find you. You're not going to ask me questions. I'm going to ask you questions. Because in me asking you questions, you're going to find your answers. That's the wisdom of God. Do you see it? It's God going to the cross. Do you see? That's the wisdom. Because in that, everybody now can be saved. What if God did it a different way? What if he did it through philosophy? Could we all be saved? You know that they say at a certain age that some people just, they, we, we, can't, we can't do concepts. It's just not in us. Okay, that, that negates half of us. Okay, women, sorry. You, God's not going to save you. Minorities, sorry. Now we're just down to what? A few men. God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to save everybody. And I'm going to do it by what? Becoming a servant of all. Because in that service, I can save all. No one, no one is too low for me to go. That's the wisdom of God. And I want you to see something. Every other religion is us working our way, working our way, working our way, achieving, achieving, achieving. And God's like, no, I'm coming down to you, and I'm going to save you. That's the wisdom it's in the cross of Christ. He deals with our sin. He conquers death for us. The cross of Christ encompasses the impossible for all mankind. And in this, you guys, I want you to see something. It's the death to your old self, and it's life in Jesus Christ. It's life in the Messiah. It's life in the Son of God. That's the power of God now to set you free, to heal you, 
of your brokenness, not to ignore it, not to ignore it, but to confront it. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine at school. She's a, like a coach, a coach, and, and I, I had some issues in my life. I know it's a shock to you. I know it's a shock. I don't want to shock you. I have some wounds in my heart from my past, and they come up on me. Did they ever come up on you? They come up on me, and I'm like, ah, what am I, I mean, I'm tired of it. So I walk up to her. She's a really sweet gal, and she had shared something her and her husband had gone through. I went, I think I could trust her. So I walked up to her, and I said, so what did we do? I told her what I was going through. She goes, hey, you have some trauma. You have some trauma in your life. I'm like, you think? I'm like, what do I do with it, you know? And she goes, walk through it in prayer with Jesus. And I went, well, what does that look like? She goes, you let him know how you feel. Let it, but don't ignore it. You pray through it, and you invite him to come in and heal. And it's hard, Armando. And I'm like, well, I'm going to put this one on hold for a little bit. We'll put a pin in this one. And she goes, I'll, I'll call me. And she goes, and I'll pray with you through it. And I went, that gives me hope. See, the world sometimes medicates us, right? Here, take a pill. Make you feel better. But does it deal with anything? I remember when Sevy was really sick in the hospital, and they were just pumping him up with opiates. I mean, pumping him up. He had a morphine pump. He just pressed a button. Anytime the pain got too hard, press a button. Then they, and he was so dopey, and he would sleep. And I, I went to the nurse, and I said, hey, um, I understand you're dealing with his pain. I said, but Kent, what's causing the pain? Can we deal with what's causing it so we can get off all these? She's like, and this is what she said to me, we don't do that. I said, okay, man, I'm going to lose it. I'm really going to lose it because my son is, I'm scared for him now, not with the cancer. I'm just as scared as the drugs. I said, come on. And she just goes, I'm sorry, you got to talk to the doctor. And I went, okay. And the doctor didn't give me much more of a better answer, but praise God, he got through it. But isn't that what the world does? Here, you don't feel good? Drink this. You don't like, you go through pain, smoke that. Here, here's a pill. And some people do need medication, right? Mental illness, not denying that. But a lot of times, you guys, it's just to mask the pain, isn't it? And maybe, maybe yours isn't prescribed. Maybe it's self-prescribed. And I'm telling you right now, God is saying to you, will you give it to me? It's not going to be easy. I'm not going to ignore it. But will you, let me walk through it with you. Let me walk through it with you. And again, and it's not going to happen overnight. See, I'm not here to give you a bad bill of goods. I'm not here to give you all this hope and be like, yeah, just say this prayer. And do you feel better? All right. Woohoo. Praise the Lord. No, 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 no. I wish it was that easy. It's a daily thing. Every time you feel that pain, every time that bad memory comes up, Jesus help me. Every time. You know how exhausting that is? But this is the way. And it makes you wiser, makes you more compassionate, makes you more loving, makes you more merciful. Hey, you know who you remind me of now? There's this guy in Israel 2,000 years ago. He walked around forgiving people and loving the unlovable and being compassionate and being moved with empathy. His name was Jesus. You remind me of him, but it comes through the pain. Comes through the pain. Not through always the easy life. And again, and so what the world tries to do so hard in its wisdom, Christ accomplishes through the power of the cross. Paul says in Ephesians, 
As we're brought into this kingdom, he says this, for he himself is our peace, who made us, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you see now where unity comes from? Why it's found in the cross? Because Paul's going, hey, you're not a Jew anymore. You're not a Greek anymore. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Your color doesn't matter. Your age doesn't matter. There's neither male nor female, Greek or Jew, barbarian or Scythian. All are one in Christ. All are new in Christ. Why? That's what he accomplished in the cross. And Paul's going, he's taken it all away. And he's made one new being, one new person. And it's called humanity, a new humanity. And that's why Paul would say it's powerful and it's wise because this is the only way. The only way to get through yourself. You're like, there are times like, Lord, I want to escape me. Is there a door somewhere? We, like just take off the suit, the Armando suit, and just, oh, let me bathe for a little bit. He's so dirty, you know? Oh, my gosh. The other day, I was, I forget where I was. I was just in my house in the morning. I'm like, Lord, would you please help me with me? My biggest problem was with that guy I look at in the mirror every day. What are you going to do something about him, you know? I keep praying about that guy, and you're still, he's still there. What are we going to do about him, you know? The cross. Pick up your cross, Armando. Your problems happen because you don't deny yourself. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it in your relationships. I don't care if you're married or not. Nephew, grandchildren, spouse, neighbor. When do you get in trouble? You don't deny yourself. We assert ourselves. And all of a sudden, right? But when we deny ourselves and we love like Christ loves and we serve like Christ serves, we become messengers of peace. We become the means of reconciliation. We become the message itself. And people are like, why are you so different? I had a friend of mine, my old, my old teacher at school. He worked in an office, and this woman knew he was a Christian, so she would torment him. She would see him, like, talking to somebody. She put a trash can at his feet so he'd fall over. She would destroy his work as he was handing it in to his boss. If she got to it first, she would shred it. He started making double copies of everything. And finally, he said, finally, he just kept loving her, kept loving her, kept loving her, kept loving her, and finally she gave her heart to Christ. But let me ask this question. If he retaliated one time, do you think she would have come? If he would have asserted himself rightly and justly, and I want you to see sometimes, it's a just response, but is it Christ? Ask God to give you the strength. You're not going to be perfect. Don't think you are. But if you deny yourself, guess what happens? The Spirit comes in, and He takes over. John Stott said this in closing, the Christian community is a community of the cross. 
for it has been brought into for it has been brought into being by the cross and the focus of its worship is the lamb once slain now glorified our community is because of what Christ did and i believe this we're in heaven we're going to join in the choruses of the angels and the saints, and we're going to say, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. All of a sudden now, all these things we divide over are gone. You know why? They're finite. They're not going into eternity. And I want, you, I want to challenge you all with this. Would you have an eternal perspective, please? Not an earthly one, not a finite one, but an eternal one. And then see how you look at problems. Because maybe for a moment... You might see him through God's eyes. You might look at the course of history. And you're going to see one thing. God is above it all. And God is going to redress the hurts. He's going to bring justice to the earth. And that's what I long for. I'm not looking for some temporary justice. I'm not looking for something that could be changed by the mob. I'm looking for a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. And I'm telling you right now, I still haven't found what I'm looking for on this earth because it's going to come from above. Revelation 21, where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth meet and God dwells with man again. That's what I want. You can have whatever this is. I don't want it. I long for that day because that's real and that's eternal. And we fight for what is right now, don't we? We pray for what is right now. We don't give up. We don't act. I hate this attitude. It's all going to burn anyway. Could you imagine if your kids told you that the day after Christmas as they're just destroying the toys that you spent half of your salary on? And as they're breaking them, they look at you and they say, it's all going to burn anyways. Right? It's all going to burn anyways. What would you do? Give me back that toy. Maybe I can still salvage it and get, take the receipt back and get my money back. I want to remind you one thing about this earth. We didn't make it. God did. It's his. And he says, take care of it. Didn't he? He said, take care of each other. Didn't he? So don't have this attitude of this fatalism. Don't. We're not fatalistic. We just know the owner's coming back. Right? We know the owner's coming back. And he, you better watch your deposit, Right? But we have an eternal perspective. Because those are the eyes God has given us now. Born again, we see the kingdom. So as we come to communion, as you hold the elements, remember this, brothers and sisters. This is the living reminder of that cross. His death and his broken body, now what? Makes the two one. His blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. From all sin, shame, and guilt, he dealt with it on the cross. It's the power of God. And we rehearse it, getting our eyes on the future, that one day we'll do it with him in the kingdom. Oh, man, I long for that day. I can't wait. Me and my friend, Latsubachi, he's like, I'm going to be dancing through those gates. I said, I'll be right next to you, brother. That's going to be a glorious day, isn't it? Get your eyes on the eternal. Let's bow our hearts as we get ready for a communion. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the power of the cross.
Lord, it accomplishes 